book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 14 is where we are. And uh, we were in Revelation 14, verses 1 to 5 last week. Um, and we are, Lord willing, um, seeking to finish out the chapter this week. And uh, we have been going through the book of Revelation since January. Since January, a long process. And we are currently in the, uh, the part of Revelation where it's the things that shall be. We have considered the things that were, the things that are, and now we're in the things that shall be. And in the things that shall be, we are now in what is commonly referred to as the tribulation period. Um, classically, the tribulation period is referred to the 70th week of Daniel, the seven-week period um, that is referred to there. However, we saw that um, as we've gone through the book of Revelation, that that seven, 70th week doesn't begin to Revelation chapter 11. Whereas... Um, the traditional view has a starting in chapter um, chapter 6, where the, the opening of the seals are. But we saw that actually the seals and the trumpets actually occur before the, the 70th week, the, the, the seven-week period. And that in beginning chapter 11, we have the, the two witnesses that are on the earth for three and a half years, witnessing for three and a half years. And at the end of the three and a half years, they are, they are killed, they are laid out for three days, and the whole um, earth rejoices over it. But then at the end of three days, they are resurrected. They're caught up into the cloud. And then at that point, the, the temple in heaven is open. And we're told that the trump sounds. The trumpet sounds. And in Revelation 10, the angel prepared to sound the trumpet. And in Revelation 11, then, at the end of the three and a half years, he sounds it. So there's that three and a half year period on, in our timetable where he goes... <gasps> And so the whole process is taken through. Anyways, it doesn't take us three and a half years, but it does in a heavenly way. And so all that process is happening during that, that breath and blowing time of the seventh trumpet. And then at the end of the seventh trumpet, we see all these other things that begin to occur at the end of the seventh trumpet. We see the, the, the um, dragon, um, the appearance, the sign of the dragon coming. And the, the dragon, um, and we have the, the pictures here, if you can kind of, you can kind of track, this is the reason I put all these pictures up here, that you know, while I'm talking and you're falling asleep, you can, um, and I know you're not, but you can look at the pictures and they kind of have the, through the pictures, kind of have the remembrance of what we've talked about going through the book of Revelation, okay? And so we saw that how the dragon was poised and, and ready to devour the, the child, and, uh, but he was thwarted in his attempt to devour the child, and the man child, the, ma the male child was Jesus Christ, and we talked about that. And so he left from seeking to devour the male child and, and sought then to devour um, Israel. The, but Israel was, was taken and, and caught up um, away and sent out into the, the wilderness, if you would. Okay? And so he was thwarted in his attempt to destroy the nation of Israel as well. And so he turned his attention to, anybody remember? To the saints. To the saints. To the believers. Okay? To those who had the, test, the commandments and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so, we saw then going into chapter 13, then, that there was another beast then that came up out of the, the sea. And that, that beast was like a, like a leopard, whereas the dragon, you know, Satan was the dragon, but the, the dragon had the seven heads and the ten horns, and this beast that came up out of the sea had the seven heads and ten horns just like him. And the dragon gave his authority to the beast that came up out of the sea. And then we saw that there was a second beast that, um, that appeared as well, and the second beast was 
uh, is the false prophet we see in, in the book of Revelation, the false prophet. And the purpose of the second beast is to give the glory to the first beast and to get everybody to worship the first beast. And he made an image of the first beast to have everybody worship. And there was also everybody was going to have to take on the, the, uh, the mark of the beast, the, the number of his name, which is either 666 or 666. It all depends on... But in the Greek, it says 666, okay? And so we talked about all the, the different potentialities that were there. But in the midst of that as well, we, t we saw about the, the Lamb's Book of Life, and we saw that the, the individuals who would take the mark of the beast were that those whose names were not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and they weren't written there from the, the beginning of the foundation of the world. Last week, we began looking at chapter 14, and we, we saw... How in chapter 14 there is this kind of this um, there's this pause for a moment in kind of a, an encouragement and a look forward to and the encouragement was with the 144,000 where um, we see that that the lamb is on Mount Zion and with the lamb on Mount Zion is the 144,000 144,000 were those that were selected from the 12 tribes of Israel we saw earlier in the book of Revelation 12,000 from each of the tribes and we're told that that being in his presence, and they had the, the, the mark of the Father's name, the Father's name stamped upon their foreheads, that at that time, there were those who were playing harps, and they were playing a song that only the 144,000 could learn. And we talked about that, that new song that was being played, and that, that the ones who play harps throughout the book of Revelation are who? The redeemed. The, 20, the four and twenty elders, the saints, those who have been redeemed. And so the song, the new song, we're told in chapter 5, is a song of redemption. And only the 144,000 could understand it because the rest that were there was a, was, a, was a heavenly audience and angels can't understand that song. They can't sing that song. They can't learn that song because they've never had the opportunity for redemption. And so it's a, a, a neat thing that's there. Now we want to continue on in the, the book of chapter 14 where, in, in Re, book of Revelation, in chapter 14, where we're told about a sneak preview. We have this angelic preview of what's going to happen throughout the rest of the 70th week, through these last three and a half years that are going to come upon the earth. And in these last three and a half years, the bowls of God's wrath are going to be poured out upon the earth. And in this chapter then, we're given, we're given a preview, we're given a sneak preview by looking at three angelic proclamations and then two harvests. Um, or actually a split harvest, if you would, that's going to come upon the earth. And again, I believe, when reading through this, that this is a sort of like a parenthesis that is a, a look toward a, a presentation of everything that's going to happen over the next couple chapters. Okay, And we'll see that as we go. So first, let's look at the angelic proclamations. First of all, we have the angelic proclamation of the first angel. And that begins right there in verse 6. And so if, you, if you're looking at at your, the Bible, you got it there, it says, And I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made the heaven and earth, and the sea, and the springs of water. Now, this angel, very clearly, is coming with what? The everlasting gospel, Right? The question, first of all, is who's his audience? Well, I think this is neat because his audience is everyone who what? Dwells on the earth. Now, 
in your mind, think about this. When is this angel coming to proclaim the gospel? Not while God's wrath is being poured out, just before God's wrath is being poured out. Okay? But, we're already been introduced to who? Well, the, the two that, the two, the two witnesses that have dead, but the false prophet. Okay? So, we've already just been introduced to the, um, the, the beast, the false prophet, the 144,000 have been encouraged because we're, we're told they're getting ready to, 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 to follow the steps of Jesus, probably into persecution and sacrifice. Okay? They're getting ready to be martyrs. And so here, in, we, we know classically, uh, traditionally as well, that, they're, that people are going to be believe a lie, and they're not going to be able to what? Be saved. But this is, remember we talked about how God's going to give them a final thing? Here's the gospel. The gospel is being presented in an, angel, an angelic proclamation. The angel is going to come. Now, I don't know how this is going to occur, okay? And we understand that the word angel is the word messenger. So another messenger came, okay, if you would. And the, the messenger's uh, message is going to be the everlasting gospel, which we'll talk about in a moment. But his audience is to everyone who dwells in the earth, to every nation, to every tribe, to every tongue, and to every people. Do you know why it states it that way? So that you can't say, or I can't say, or anybody can't say, that there's one little bitty group that won't hear. Every facet of people on the earth will be able to know the truth of God's word. According to this, nothing personal against pygmies in Africa, but you know, everybody always wants to know about that, that tribe way back in, in, in the jungles, right? Will they hear? The answer is yes. Everyone will hear the gospel message. I love this because we're told that God is not a what? No, he's not a liar, yes. But he's not a respecter of persons is where I'm going. <laughs> You're right. So it's going to be true. It's going to happen. You know, but, but God is not a respecter of persons. We are. And we may be a respecter of persons racially, quote-unquote, but honestly, I believe there's only two, form, two races of men. And those of you who know the, the answers in Genesis stuff, what are the two races? Lost and saved. That's exactly right. You've got believers and unbelievers. You've got sons of God or sons of Adam. It's one or the other. Okay, sons of Christ. So, so the reality is, that, but we, we look at races, and when we call races, we really base races upon what? Skin color. So really, we, we are respecter of persons based upon skin color, we're respecter of persons based upon nationality, we're respecter of persons based upon culture, we're respecter of persons based upon denominations, we're respecter of persons based upon um, political opinions and views. But God's not. God spans the spectrum. Isn't that neat? I mean... There are honestly Democrats that are saved. No, I'm sorry. Anyways, <laughs> that's a joke, okay? And I, 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 there really aren't. No, no, I don't mean that. That's not the way I meant it. Anyways, my point is not to be political. But anyways, but however you, whatever those, those, those lines are that we, we draw, you know, God doesn't draw his lines there. I mean, the fact is, there are sinners that are saved. Praise God. <laughs> yeah. Okay? Because every single one of us was an enemy of God. So if we want to get into political things, the reality is that God shouldn't have anything to do with any one of us. Because we're told that what? We were at M 
enmity with God. So God is not a respecter of persons from the perspective of he's going to judge each one fairly, but not only is he going to judge each one fairly, but he's going to save each one equally as well. And so the message of the gospel goes out. So whether you want to say elect and non-elect, whether you want to say free will and not free will and all that kind of stuff, it doesn't really matter to me. The fact is, the gospel is going to be proclaimed to what? To everyone. And everyone's going to have the opportunity to respond. Now the question, question is, what, or not the question, I guess, it's, it's more that, to me, the, the, the exciting part here is, um, and probably one that's really frustrating to, to many people, and that is, these, this angel comes with the message, and his message is the everlasting gospel. And so don't look at the book of Revelation right now, okay? Especially if you were in Sunday school just a little bit ago. I said we're going to talk about this today, right? What's the everlasting gospel? God's mercy. Okay. Say it again. That God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That's not what we're told right here. It has nothing to do with Christ. What is the everlasting gospel according to this angelic messenger? Fear God. Fear God and give him glory and worship him. Fear God and worship him. Fear God and worship God. That's the, that is the everlasting gospel. Now, you say, wait a second. What does that have to do with Jesus? It has everything to do with Jesus. It's the part of the gospel that we fully miss. See, the gospel means good news. It's ungalion. It's the exact same word that Paul uses when he says, and I declare to you the good news, the gospel which I received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, how he was buried, and that um, he... Yeah, but buried... That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was... Three days. That he was buried... That he rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures. Thank you, that's exactly right. I, I got myself all wrapped up wrong in that one. Anyways, but he rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures. And so that's the good news, okay? That's there. But, so how does that equate with the fear of God? Well, very clearly, if someone doesn't understand that they're a sinner, then they're not going to need a savior. And not only that now, so now I recognize I'm a sinner. Big deal. Because God is a God of love. Right? God's a God of love. And God loves everything. Universal salvation. Haven't you ever heard of that one? I mean, my God's a God of love. I don't know about your God. You may have the God of the Old Testament, but I have the God of the New Testament. And my God won't send people to hell. My God can't do that. What's that? Grace. Grace. Oh, okay. But according to God's word, what's going to happen? People are going to go to hell. That's exactly right. And they misunderstand the fullness of it. So, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the beginning of knowledge, okay? But fools despise knowledge and understanding, okay? And so the instruction and understanding. So the fear of God, fear of God is the good news because it is the initial step in order for somebody to come to God for salvation. Tied right into this is the kernel, the core of who God is. We worship him. Why? He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. Now, so put it all together, right? God did what for us? He created us. Where were you apart from God's creation? You ain't. You just, you're am not. You, you, you ain't, okay? You, you're, you're just, you're, you're nothing. You're, you're not even a nothing. You're just, whatever it could be. I mean, it's just, I mean what's a nothing without a nothing? It's just, you're not even a thought process. And so, 
But God creates you, right? And as God creates you, you turn away from him. He's your father. You turn away from him in rebellion and sin. And you walk your own way. What's the path that you're choosing? Death. Destruction. Eternal condemnation. But God in his grace and in his mercy says what? I love you. And, and I want you. And so therefore, I will do what for you? I'll die for you. But you have to do what? you got to accept it. you got to do it my way. Okay? I mean, that sounds really prideful, but he's God. I mean, and if anybody has a right to say that, it's God has a right to say that, right? And so you got to do it God's way. You can't sit there and say, no, I'm going to do it my way. God says, fine, you do it your way. And you find out where your way ends. But rather, if you want my ending, this, you know, my, the, the ending that I've created, then you got to do it my way. You've got to submit to my plan. And that's where the fear of God comes in. Because I've got to understand that the wages of sin is death. That if I do it my way, then what I get, the consequences for my action, the consequences of my rebellion, is eternal condemnation, which we're going to look at in just a moment. Of what, it, what it's going to amount to. And it's a fearful thing. And for the, so the first step of coming to Jesus Christ, which is part of the good news, is understanding who I am and who God is. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 about the, the, the concept where we talk about persuading men and stuff like that. And he says that he yearns to be outside the, 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 the tent of his body so that he can be with, with the Lord, to be absent from the, the body is to be present with the Lord. Right? But he says, therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And the word terror there actually means to be terrified, afraid, fear. What he's talking about, he says if we would use the same words here, therefore, knowing the fear of God. That's the term. It's the fear of God. Yeah, read. Is the, is the, is the Hebrew word, and we like to translate the, that, that word respect. This just means respect. To revere God. To respect God. No! It means to be terrified of God. Now, because I'm terrified, there is a respect that I give Him. Do you understand? So it translates. And I, I just, I cringe when New Testament saints Try to water down what this means. Perfect love casts out fear. So I don't have to walk in fear of God. Why? Because I know him. He's my daddy. However, if I choose to walk in disobedience to him, guess what? The chastening comes and therefore I should be in fear. You know, I don't want my kids to cringe every time I go to, to hug them. But if when I go to get them, they, they begin to shirk back a little bit, it's usually either a sign that I am an abusive parent or that they are a disobedient child. Do, do you get it? I mean, it's one of the two. Neither, either I am overtly disciplining, quote-unquote, correcting, punishing them, or... They're pretty uh, rebellious, and they're getting the rod quite often. So every time I come to them, right, was that? They're used to it. They're used to it. Yeah, that's right. Okay, that's exactly right. So, so there's a balance that's there. But honestly, if I'm walking in, in love and in relationship with my Heavenly Father, is there any fear? There is no fear, because perfect love casts out fear. But the fear is still out there. It's still part of who God is. And so... 
that everlasting gospel, the everlasting good news is fear God. And so think about it. It makes sense. Because this angel again is coming when? Right before the wrath. And right when the people are going to have to choose to serve the beast or serve God. To take the mark of the beast or take the mark of God. Remember we talked about that. That everybody's going to have a mark. You're going to decide whose mark you want. You're either going to take the mark of the beast or mark of the father. Whose mark do you want? And so he comes and he says what? Fear God and worship him. Because what's getting ready to happen? Remember, go back into chapter 13. The false prophet is teaching everybody to do what? Worship the beast. And in that, that which we're not told, but I believe which would be a very big part of it, is also fear the beast. Because everyone who will not bow down to the image of the beast, what will happen to them? They'll die. They'll be killed. Okay? Do you understand? And so there is that concept where you've got to be able to fear the beast so that you will then worship the beast. Because if you don't worship the beast, if you don't fear the beast, what's going to happen? You're going to die. So here's the other side of it. God comes with his messenger just as this is all getting ready to happen and he sends out the message. Fear God and worship him. This is the good news. This is what's going to, this is where it's all going to go. And so follow God's plan. Don't follow the beast. So, we move on then with the second angelic proclamation. Oh, I'm sorry. I wanted to bring in Psalm 147. I forgot. It says, Yahweh, the Lord, does not delight in the strength of horse, horses. He takes no pleasure in the legs of man. But Yahweh takes pleasure in those who fear him, fear him and those who hope in his mercy. And so those who fear him, really, there's the, the double-edged sword is coming in. The ones who fear him really are what? Are trusting in his mercy. They're not trusting in themselves. Okay? That second angelic proclamation um, is a proclamation of Babylon's fall. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Now this is, again, a look ahead, as we're going to see in chapter um, 18 when we get there. So we're not going to spend a lot of time here. But this Babylon is going to fall. Now there's a lot of debate who Babylon is. We'll talk a little bit more in chapter 18. But as a whole, for this purpose right here, Babylon is, um, I believe, twofold. It is a, a, um, it is a power, okay, which we'll talk a little bit more in chapter 18. But it is also symbolic as well of the world system. It has always been that 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 physical empire, that physical power, has always been symbolic of the world system. Even when you had Babylon, even when you had Medo-Persia. Even when you had Greece and you had Rome, they were ruling the world and they were controlling the world and they were the ones to whom everybody was seeking to be conformed to the image of. Does that make sense? And so when Paul says in Romans chapter 12 that you present your body as a living sacrifice, holding and acceptable, which is your perfect, um, which is your reasonable act of worship before God, and don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed to renewing the mind, what he is talking about when he says being don't be conformed to the world is that is, the, the world's concept, the world, um, the, uh, oh, the, my mind just went away for me. The, 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 the world's way of thinking, thank you. Uh, the materialism that the world has, that everything is based here and now. 
And so rather, we're supposed to be, have our minds transformed um, in the renewing of our mind through the word of Jesus Christ and the mind of Christ. And so in this, I see Babylon as symbolic um, of the world system, and that is a system of materialism that has gone on through all the ages. Okay, And I think that we're going to see that here as well, and that is why the beast with his mark, the mark of the beast, is a, um, is a controlling influence over whether you can buy or sell. Does that make sense? It's materialism. It's all built into that. He's the, he's the god of material things. And so, so we have the, the, the proclamation of Babylon's fall, but what's the reason for the fall? Anybody see that there? Why is, is Babylon going to be falling? She made all the, the nations drink of her her fornication, her immorality, okay? And the word fornication is sexual morality or immorality. And we talked last week about that double-edged sword, remember, for the 144,000. How the 144,000 were, were those who have not been defiled by a woman, but that they followed the lamb wherever he went, okay? And we talked about that defilement that, of a woman, that it was that they were set apart to God, so they, they weren't focused on women, they weren't focused on the things of the world, how they could please their wives. But the other side of it is the spiritual side that I believe is there as well, and that is the spiritual adultery that's there. The spiritual immorality that is there. And that is that we, when we go lusting after the things of the world, really turn our attention away from our husband, our groom, that is Christ, and set him on another woman. That is the world. And we commit spiritual adultery. And that is the two-edged sword as well, I think, that is Babylon's fall. I don't think it's just physical sexual immorality, which I believe that it is, because I think that, and we're going to see this in a moment, I think is a culmination of what, what the, um, the turning away from God is. Okay, We'll see that in Romans chapter 1. But when we turn away from God, then ultimately it will lead into a debased mind, lasciviousness, and into physical sexual morality. But I believe that that is a physical picture of the spiritual immorality, if you would, that is there, that we have turned away and committed adultery and have turned to other lovers. And I think that that's exactly what's being said about Babylon, that Babylon not only filled the world with its physical pornographies, if you would, its physical fornications, but I think that it's filled the world with its spiritual pornography, if you would. It's spiritual um, fornication as well. And in Romans 1, verses 18 to 28, we read, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them. Drop down to verse 21. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, and professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, what's the therefore go back to? Because they've, they've turned away from God and his wrath is coming on them, right? Therefore, God has also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use of what is against nature. Likewise, also men, leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another, 
men for men, men with men, committing what is, un, what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Three times we're told how God's wrath is quote-unquote poured out upon men when men turn away from God. What does he do? He gives them up. He turns them over. And what does he give them up and turn them over to? Themselves. Themselves. He says, fine, you want to be God. You be God. Let's see where you go. And what do we do? We self-destruct. Think about it. What ultimately happens when a woman exchanges the natural use of a man, if you would, for another woman? Or a man changes the natural use of a woman for another man? What ultimately happens? We don't procreate. We don't have kids. According to God's plan. And so when we don't have kids, what happens? We become extinct. It's amazing how we're so worried about the extinction of animals and we're not worried about the extinction of man. Isn't it not so? I mean, we, we begin to worship the creature and the creation rather than the creator and we destroy ourselves. It's just an amazing thing. And so, so God hands the world over and says, fine. I mean, it, I don't know about you, this, this is a great description of the United States right now. You know? I mean, people say, what's wrong with the land? I can tell you what's wrong with the land. I mean, God put it in His Word. We chose to worship the creation rather than the Creator. And when we did that, God handed us over. So back in the 1920s, when we made that decision... Right on the heels of it is the Great Depression. Coming out of the Great Depression is what? The New Deal plan, right? And all of our socialism and, and semi-communism that's beginning to happen. One generation from the 1920s is the 1960s. What happened in the 60s? We take prayer and Bible reading out of school. It makes sense. I don't know about you, but I don't want my kid being led in prayer by, by a Wiccan or by, by, by someone who doesn't know, know Christ. So it makes sense, because just for a whole generation, you just taught them there is no creator God. And that the Bible is wrong. So it makes sense to take it out of, out of school. One generation later, is the early 2000s. And what do we see? Abortion on demand. Kids killing kids. Homosexuality being declared now a special interest group. A minority group. We have laws getting ready to protect them so that I can't even mention this anymore or I'll be in, 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 in um, contempt that's right, contempt of the law and, um, and that I could be held accountable for that and this church would be closed because this is hate though I'm not preaching in a hate, this is just fact this is what the Bible teaches but somebody could be offended by it and so it would be a hate crime it's an amazing thing where we're at and so when I begin to read the book of Revelation, I begin to realize what? We're not too far. It's amazing. We just don't learn from history. And we don't learn from that's there. So, the reason for Babylon's fall is because of this physical and spiritual adultery. The third angel, the third angel of the proclamation that's there, is that whoever worships the beast and receives his mark will drink of the wrath of God. Now, you know, again, this goes along with that everlasting gospel concept. The grace of God that's here. Think about it. People can say, well, I didn't know. 
Can I say that? Nope. No. Because God's going to come and he's going to tell them. You know, we can laugh at the, the guys who stand on the corner with the, the, the hellfire messages. You know, repent or go to hell. You know, because we say, well, that's not really loving. That's not really drawing people to him. That's really turning people away because you're basically judging them and telling them to go to hell. Well, that's maybe not my style either. However, everyone who read that message is now responsible for what they heard. Do you get it? Because they know the truth. God says, if you don't turn from your wicked ways, you will be condemned. If you don't turn to Jesus Christ, you will be held accountable for your sins. And you will be condemned. So God comes, and he says, and he tells them, he says, listen, whoever worships the beast and receives his mark, there's no turning back. This is the decision that you're making right now. You receive this mark. You bow the knee to the beast. You will drink of my wrath. Wow. This is an incredible statement. Now understand, all these other things that happened during the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments, this wasn't wrath. Remember we talked back then when people were saying, oh, the wrath of the Lamb is coming. I said, no, no, those were unbelievers saying it was the wrath of the Lamb. That wasn't God. Now God's saying God says, what you saw before, there was nothing compared to what you're going to be seeing. Why? Because when God overtly puts out his wrath, not just hands us over to our own lasciviousness, his ultimate wrath, his ultimate justice, if you would, is in the hellfire and brimstone that we don't like to hear about. That those who receive the mark of the beast, who worship him, they will live eternally, everlastingly, and be tormented with fire and brimstone in the lake of fire. Mark, Mark chapter 9, Jesus says, because we say, well, Jesus wouldn't have done this, really, okay? Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands go to hell into the fire that shall not be quenched. Where their worm does not die and fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell into fire that shall never be quenched. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin and pluck it out, it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes be cast into hellfire where the worm does not die and fire is not quenched. Now, I don't know about you, but there are five times in that passage, not just the two times that are highlighted, but five times in that passage where it says the fire is not quenched. And three times where it says the worm what? Doesn't die. So eight times in six verses where Jesus basically says that the torment of those who reject him is going to be what? Eternal. And it's not going to be pleasant. All the jokes of, well, all my friends are going to be there, so I'm going to, I'm going to join the party. That doesn't sound like a party. I remember as a teenager singing all the ACDC songs and the, the, the Def Leppard songs and the 
the Led Zeppelin songs and and all the, the, the mockery songs, the the Blue Oyster Cult things, and some of you that those are bringing in some of the, the, the songs from those ages. But we mock them, and it's amazing to me how many times when I'm looking for graphics for these messages, when I get to the Beast, and I get to um, the 666, and I, I get to Wrath, and I get to the, the Blood and the Wine Press, how many rock groups there are out there that take those names, mocking God. They hear them, they know the message. It's amazing to me how many people know God's message and mock it. Use it as a, as a mocking term. There's not many people who are going to be able to get there one day and say, I didn't know. I never heard. That slides us into this second half of, the, of, the, of this process, and that is the end time harvest. And I said that there's going to be these two harvests that are going to go on, or a two-part harvest, if you would, a harvest with two phases. And we're told here, beginning in, in verse 14, it says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, and it's actually one like a Son of Man in the Greek, having on his head a golden crown, and his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle, and reap, for the time has come for you to reap. For the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now, back when we were going through chapter 10, we, we talked about this passage a little bit, because there is the potential that this is Jesus Christ coming, and this is referring to the harpazo of the church, or the rapture of the church. This is the pre-wrath position. If you've heard of the pre-wrath rapture of the church, this is where they would say the pre-wrath rapture of the church happens. Though they say that that is not a mid-tribulational rapture, it really is. I mean, it, 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 it's right there. It's splitting hairs whether it's mid-trib or not. Um, because this is right before the last three and a half years begins. This is in that parenthesis. The reason that, that this view is held, okay, and it's a very good reason, if you remember back in chapter 10 when I stated this, that if I didn't believe that the harpazo or the rapture of the church happened in chapter 10 of the book of Revelation, then I would believe this. Okay, then I would become a, a, a mid-trib or a pre-wrath position. I believe that it's pre-tribulational based upon the book of Daniel um, in the 70 weeks, and that they are for Israel, and the fact that then there is the one who comes in the cloud with the rainbow and such in chapter 10, and I believe that that is Jesus. And I believe that the church is caught up because that is the completion of the mystery. So that is the fullness of why I believe that that happens there, because the church is taken out of the way, because God's going to deal once again with Israel beginning in chapter 11. However, I do believe, on the other hand, okay, and though at that point I said this sounds more like an angel, I do believe that this is probably Jesus that's here. Okay? But I don't believe that this, this um, harvest, this first harvest, is talking about the harpazo or the rapture of the church. Okay, why? Because it goes back again to what the fullness of what I think this chapter is all about. And that is, it is a preview of what's happening over the last three and a half years. Okay? And so, we saw Babylon the Great is fallen is fallen. Right? We saw the warning to those who were taking the mark of the beast. And so the, the, the falling of Babylon is in chapter 18. Here what we're going to begin to read about is Armageddon. The nations coming together. 
and, and how there's going to be the destruction that's going on. And prior to that, that, that destruction of the nations, prior to that wine press being happening, we're told that there's going to be this first harvest that's going to happen. Now, description of the first angel. He, he's one who is in the clouds. He's coming in the clouds, right? Um, and I believe that Jesus is going to come in the clouds. Now, it does say, like a son of man, not the son of man. There's a big difference between a and the, right? The son of man means that there's a specific one that he's talking about. A son of man is, can refer to us, okay? Just looking like a son of man means that they, he has a human form. He doesn't look like one of those, those four beasts, you know, that have the, the head of an ox or the head of a, a lion or the head of a, an eagle or, you know, all that kind of stuff. He looks like a, a person coming in the clouds. So whether it is Jesus Christ or not, I'm not going to be definitive on, but I believe that it is based upon the fact that I believe that it is a precursor, a look toward Jesus Christ coming um, at Armageddon. Okay? And so we're told that he comes with a sickle and he's going he's to reap. Okay? And so the angel tells him to take the sickle and to, to, to reap because the, the time the reaping is come. And so I believe that that's that's what it is, and you can see the pictures of the sickles up there. That's kind of the idea of what he has in his hand when he comes to, to, to get those grapes. Okay? But there is a second harvest that's talked talk about, and boy, I wish the coloring of that presentation was a little bit better there, but you can kind of see the, the, the wine presses that are here. The, the, the background picture is, is an old wine press, what they looked like back then, and um, they would have a huge basalt stone, usually basalt, um, which is a solid rock that would rotate around on it, and it would squish the grapes. They would take the grapes, and they would lay them out, and then they would run this thing on there, and they would, they would crush them. And then they, they, they uh, changed, and they, they had another one where they would have a, a stone which was screwed down on top of the grapes, and it would press them more and more. And that's kind of the picture right here um, down below, one of the, the more modern ones okay, that, that they've gone to. And so this is a, a wooden barrel, so clearly that's not from Jesus' point day. But you would put all the grapes in there, and then you would take this basalt stone or whatever, and it would screw down, and, and you would tighten it down more and more. And as, the, the, um, as the, the stone was brought lower and lower, and the pressure was put on more and more, the, the grapes would be pressed, pressed. And then there was this little spout where the, the blood, I mean the wine, the juice would pour out. And that's exactly what, what God is talking about here. That, that, that in this harvest, that there was going to be this, this great um, flow of blood that um, the angels were going to come and they were going to harvest the earth and they were going to throw them into the winepress of God. Now the first thing we want to look at is where do these angels come from? What's their origin? Yeah, they're coming from the presence of God. The first one comes out of the temple... Right? Where does the second one come from? Specifically? The altar itself. Isn't that something? He comes out of the altar. Now, what, what do you think, what do you think that would be a picture of? Why? I mean, the first one's coming from the temple, right? And that's the presence of God. He has the command of God, right? So what is it, why would an angel coming, uh, would he come out of the altar? That seems like a weird place to come out of. It's a place of sacrifice. This is the final sacrifice that's going to be made to God. These people would not lay their bodies down as a sacrifice. And so they will be sacrificed. 
That sounds, I mean, that sounds really crude. It could come from the, 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 the altar of incense where the, the saints are underneath saying, how long, O God, holy and true, will you avenge us upon... And that's true. That, that, that potentially is coming from there as well. But I, I think that the concept where the blood is flowing as well, though, is like this, is that when you had a, um, a sacrifice, they would capture the blood in the bowl. And they would the, the priest would take his figure, he would dip it, he would sprinkle it seven times upon the altar, and then he would anoint the horns of the altar, and then he would pour the rest of the blood at the base of the altar. And so, um, in a sense, it's, it's, it's a picture of, of what's happening here. And there's so much blood that we're told that it would be up to the horse's bridle for 1,600 furlongs. Now, there's debate upon what a furlong is, whether it's a mile or um, whether it's a, another measurement or whatever. But let's just say for a moment right now, whether it's 200 miles or 1,600 miles, that's a lot of blood. Okay? And in Hebraic, and in Hebraic um, writings, that is always a picture. Okay? So I understand I take things literally, unless it's a picture. Okay? And in Hebraic writings, this is always a picture. They use a hyperbole to, um, to demonstrate the vastness of the destruction. Okay? And so this is a huge destruction that's getting ready to happen. The hyperbole that is being used right now is fast. Um, we're told by, um, I'm trying to think which one of the writers it was, that in this one battle that the blood was up to the horse's nostrils. You know, in other words, was it really up to the horse's nostrils? No, it wasn't really up to the horse's nostrils, but they were saying is there was so much blood shed, there's so much destruction in this, in this battle that it was almost like the blood was all, all the way up to the nostrils. Well, here it's going to be up to the bridles of the horses, so about four and a half feet, 1,600 miles or 1,600 square miles. However you want to, you put it, it doesn't matter to me, it's a lot of bloodshed. This is talking about the battle of Armageddon. The extent of the harvest is, is just devastating. And when we get to chapter 19, when we begin to look at the, um, the, the extent there, we'll see that. So, the question for you and I that I have is, as I come through this and I, and I look at the, the proclamations of these angels, and that is, how involved am I in proclaiming the everlasting gospel? If God saw that it was important enough to send a heavenly messenger to warn all those at the end time, how, how involved am I? Haven't I been told, haven't I been instructed to go out and what? Preach the gospel to all creatures? Haven't I been called to go into all nations and to make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe the things that Christ has taught me haven't we been told that there is no other name given amongst men whereby we must be saved and that name is Jesus and so if we believe that the days are growing darker the night is coming when no man works then shouldn't I be involved in the harvest? The fields are white on the harvest, but the laborers are few. Pray, therefore, that the Lord of the harvest will send laborers into his field. But it's not important enough. The football game is more important 
I know, I'm using a, a contrast, that, but that one bites on me, that, okay? You can put it in your own little thing that, that'll cause you to struggle. There are too many things in life that are more pressing than the wine press of God. And it shouldn't be. If you really believe that hell is out there, and that those who reject the message will end up there, then you should have a desire to serve God by proclaiming his gospel. After seeing what God thinks about Babylon and the materialistic system of the world, what impact should that have upon your life? Babylon the Great is fallen is fallen. God doesn't have a love for the world. Rather, he says in his word that anyone who loves the world doesn't love God. If you're a friend of the world, you're not a friend of God. We're told that um, for all that is of the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof, but whoso does do with the will of God abides forever. And so, are you a friend of the world, or a friend of God? Are you a lover of the world, or a lover of God? Or are you a servant of the world, or a servant of God? Jesus said you can't serve two masters. You're either going to love the one, despise the other, or you're going to serve the one, and, and, and hate the other. And finally, the end time harvest is coming. If it was today, which harvest would you be a part of? Would you be a part of that first harvest, where Jesus is taking his grapes, if you would, and spearing them from the ultimate wine press? Or would you be a part of the wine press? Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior today? Do you, have you acknowledged your sin? Understood that you can't save yourself? And have not just with your lips said, save me, but with your life said, I'm committed to your process. Behold, now is the day of salvation, deliverance. And I look around and I say, okay, so you're all saved. I don't know that though. And you don't know ultimately whether I really am saved. How many people have turned away from the faith? It's just a scary thing sometimes, you know. And whether you, we say, well, they really were saved. Well, the Bible talks about those who have shipwrecked their faith. That maybe they weren't really saved to begin with. Jesus said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me, and my words abide in him, the saying bringeth forth much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. But earlier he said, in that same passage in John 15, that there were some um, branches who were dried and unfruitful. And they were going to be gathered up and thrown where? Into the fire. And people worry about that thing, about they lose their salvation. And the answer to that is no, you can't lose your salvation. That there are some who pretend to be branches, but they're not fruitful. And that's the difference. That those who are abiding in Christ and his words abiding in them, the same brings forth what? Much fruit. But apart from him, you can't do anything. And so those branches that appear to be branches, that seem to be branches, but they don't have any fruit on them, more than likely, what? 
have never been attached to the vine. They're not believers. They're adakamas. They're not genuine. They're not true. And one day, that ultimate jeweler is going to look at your gem of your life and determine whether you really are a diamond or whether you're a cubic zirconium. And you can pass everybody's attention on the earth and everybody could think that you're a diamond. But in the end, it only matters what the jeweler thinks. So, which harvest will you be a part of? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for your love. I thank you for your faithfulness to us. I thank you for your message, Lord, giving us the everlasting gospel to fear you. To understand who we are and who you are. You are the creator of the heavens and the earth. You're the one who breathed the breath of life into us. You're the one who knew before you ever laid the foundations of the world and made man that we would reject you and we would sin. And so you are the, the author of salvation. You are also the sacrifice of our salvation. You are the purchase price. You are the propitiation. You are the atonement. And I am a sinner whose heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who was at enmity with you. But we glorify you, Lord, that you loved us that much. That you would come and die for us. Lord, I pray that if any of us here today are not genuine. Lord, that you would impress that upon us before we are pressed in the wine press of your wrath. Lord, I pray that for those who are your children, Lord, that you will cause us to be fervent, zealous for your glory, for your grace, for your word, for your testimony, for your truth, for your name. Lord, that we would desire to be one of your messengers, if you would, proclaiming your gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. Of his death, his burial, his resurrection. His payment for our sin, and that we would no longer have to walk in fear, but that we could come before you in love. Lord, I pray. For those that I know that are without you, Lord, that you would soften hearts and help me to be bold. In Jesus' name, amen.